Welcome to ACE Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in as we elevate clinical endocrinology by taking deep dives into trends and topics that can help us improve our patient care and global health. Find the latest episodes on aace.com slash podcasts. And now let's meet the endocrine experts who will be talking with us today. Hi, and welcome to this ACE Podcasts. My name is Vin Tang Precha, and I'm the host of this ACE podcast. We have two very special guests joining us. And the topic of today's ACE podcast is the ACE Comprehensive Type 2 Diabetes Management Algorithm. This is a brand new white paper that's being released by ACE this year. And our two guests are Dr. Earl Hirsch and Dr. Susan Samson. Can you please first introduce yourselves, Dr. Hirsch, starting with you? Okay, thank you. My name is Earl Hirsch. I'm a professor of medicine at the University of Washington in hopefully sunny Seattle, where we will all be or where we are right now, depending on when you are listening to this. And it's great to be here, Vin. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And Dr. Samson? Hi, I'm Sue Sampson. I'm the chair of endocrinology at Mayo Clinic Florida and also president-elect of ACE. But one of the most uh, enjoyable projects of this last year was to work with our task force on this 2023 update for the diabetes algorithm. And uh, Dr. Hirsch was also on that team. And so we're really proud of the work that has been done here and how it could impact our colleagues' care of their patients with diabetes. Great. Thank you. So um, I think the audience wants to know what is new in this algorithm. First, maybe tell us, Dr. Sampson, how do we use this algorithm and what is the purpose of the algorithm? That's a great question. And I think you have to think about the history here. So ACE has always wanted to provide accessible and accurate clinical guidance for providers. And so I think really the original iteration of this were the diabetes roadmaps that then evolved later on into the diabetes algorithm that has been updated every year until 2020. And then again, will be this newer version in 2023. So there was a framework in place already that really showed us how we could think about our patients with diabetes, their glycemic control, and how to manage their medications, their hypertension, their dyslipidemia. How this has changed is that we have been able to gather so much more evidence about the approach that we should be taking for our patients. So instead of constantly thinking about the glucose all the time, now we have to think about what is different about my patient? Do they have complications I really need to pay attention to? Do they have cardiovascular disease? Have they had a stroke? Are they high risk for stroke with the TIA? Do they have kidney disease, among other concerns? And really choose wisely among our medication choices for treating these patients to decrease their risk of these other diseases progressing. You bring up a great point, Dr. Sampson, about the evolution of these guidelines and algorithms. And we just heard from Dr. Hirsch at his plenary talk in Seattle that I think what's really novel about these guidelines that is that it's not so much glucocentric anymore. Now there's, as you mentioned, complications that you have to think about. Earl, can you 
talk about that from your talk. Why should providers change their focus from a glucose-centric target to now more a complications-based model? That's a great question. And the reason is we have all of these new medications over the last 15 years, 20 years, and not only that, but now we have evidence. And it used to be back when I was in my training decades ago, the diabetologist, the endocrinologist focused on the blood sugars, the nephrologist focused on the kidneys and the albuminuria, the cardiologist focused on the heart. And we can't be that way anymore. And in fact, one of the point of the algorithms, in my view, is how we have to continue to work even better together as far as the patient with diabetes and CKD or the patient with diabetes and heart failure or somebody who's had a stent because now these diabetes drugs are all involved with potentially making not only the blood sugars better, but also these other complication-related outcomes. And I should relate to that. One of the outcomes, which is not a good outcome, which we've been using in diabetes for over 100 years, and that's the potential for hypoglycemia, Mm -hmm. especially somebody who has known heart disease, somebody with known arrhythmias, somebody who's elderly. And we used to not think about that quite as much. I'm old enough to remember the use of chlorpropamide and not being able to get these people out of hypoglycemia from their sulfonylureas, but that has really changed. And what this algorithm does is it puts all of that together while at the same time, it's very clear that while we are working on our patient with CKD or heart failure, we need to be doing this in conjunction with our nephrology Mm -hmm. or cardiology colleagues. Very important point. Great. So Sue, could you give us an example how a endocrinologist, primary care physician, anyone taking care of a person with diabetes could use the algorithm and take into account a complication that the person might already have? How do we leverage this algorithm to improve patient care? What I love about this algorithm is it continues to emphasize that the pillars of treatment, first of all, are lifestyle and also management of overweight and obesity. So when you walk through the algorithm in the order of of the panels that are provided or the slides or algorithms that are provided, it reminds you of that because that's really the first thing you come across in the algorithm. So never forgetting about the importance of management of weight and obesity and ABCD complications, adiposity-based chronic disease. As you move through the algorithm, um, what you'll find is additional guidance on how to choose medications for the control of hypertension, how to treat dyslipidemia in a way that aligns with ACEs lipid guidelines as well. And then you get to where you're looking at, how do I achieve the goals I need for glycemic control? Mm -hmm. And The very first part of that is going to be complication-centric, which is what Dr. Hirsch was talking about. So it brings you there. So let me give you an example. Walking through the complication-centric algorithm. So if you have a patient, for example, 
that has a history of heart failure, hospitalization for heart failure, and type 2 diabetes. And you need to, in addition to lifestyle intervention, add a medication to control their glucose. The algorithm will tell you that under the category of heart failure, Mm. the best evidence for improving that patient's outcomes will be with an SGLT2 inhibitor. So you would choose an SGLT2 inhibitor that has data on decreasing the risk of hospitalization or any other comorbidity related to heart failure. And you would continue to individualize that glycemic target depending on your patient. Mm -hmm. Could be tight control at 6.5% or looser control if they have risk factors for Mm -hmm. hypoglycemia. We also recommend then that you think about continuing or starting metformin. And then if not at control, it also helps guide you in what you would add next. Mm -hmm. So in in this case, the example I gave you of heart failure, you could then say, I'm going to add a GLP-1 receptor agonist because that's the direction the algorithm takes you in. So it kind of walks you through the steps and asks you not to have inertia. Don't just add a drug and see your patient in a year. Add it, continue to monitor the glucose. And if, you know, in three months or less, you're not seeing the control that you expect, then please titrate up that medication or add another one in a class that has been shown a benefit for your particular patient. Thanks so much. I see that. That is so important. I see all the different complications that are put in the algorithm. For example, there's stroke, CKD, looks like CKD, SGLT2 or GLP-1 is recommended first. Then you individualize your glycemic targets, and then you assess for hypoglycemia. And so I wanted to ask Dr. Hirsch about that. How does someone's risk for hypoglycemia impact someone's individual target? Well, for somebody who has to take insulin, for example, we have very specific guidelines for what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. The problem with our guidelines for hypoglycemia, for the most part, is that they come from type 1 studies, and they may not be appropriate for some of our older, more frail type 2 patients. As a rule of thumb, when we're looking at hypoglycemia, it's very difficult to get a good view of hypoglycemia with occasional finger stick glucose testing. And one of the good things that is evolving, like everything is evolving right now in diabetes management, is the fact that we are able to use more continuous glucose monitoring in people with type 2 diabetes. And in fact, literally starting this spring, a few weeks before the ACE meeting, Medicare is now covering CGM for people on basal alone therapy, basal insulin alone. Yet, We all have patients who are not on insulin who feel it is so helpful for their own self-management that they purchase a CGM themselves. One of the brands, the Abbott Libre, is affordable for many people, and they just buy it. And maybe they'll use it one week or two weeks a month or two weeks every other month or the two weeks before they come in. But they feel it's very helpful to use the CGM even if they are not on insulin. But I think the point of hypoglycemia is critical 
as we've learned so much about the dangers of hypoglycemia in the past decade as it pertains to everything from thrombosis to arrhythmias to even long-term cognitive issues. So I do think we have to respect it. And the bottom line from the international consensus on CGM is that for our more frail patients where we know hypoglycemia could have more detriments, we want the time below range, that is the time below 70 milligrams per deciliter, to be less than 1% when looking at the CGM download. Mm -hmm. And it is my belief that this particular ACE algorithm is not static. It will continue to evolve as our science evolves. And I do believe that CGM for the type 2 patient will continue to be an increasing part of the algorithms in the future as it is a bigger part of this algorithm than it was in past algorithms. Thank you so much. I guess I want to ask a follow-up question on the uh, use of CGM. So what do you think are uh, appropriate CGM metrics for people using the algorithm, especially in type 2 patients? What should they be looking for? Well, I think in the type 2 patient, the first issue is, is this patient on a sulfonylurea or insulin? Because if they are not, then I become less concerned about hypoglycemia. And what I really want is I want to see that time in range above 70%. Now, why is 70% sort of the magic number? And there is a lot of evidence to go through this. But as a rule of thumb, for the average patient, and there's no such thing as an average patient, but if there was such a thing, 70% time in range would be an A1C of about 7%. Now I said about 7%. And a time in range of 75 to 76% or so on average would be a time in range, uh, would be an A1C of 6.5%. Now, why do I say about? And this is where the research becomes very important. There have been several studies, including ours, that showed there's variability of A1C between individuals. And there are two reasons for this. One has to do red blood cell lifespan, which is something we inherit from our parents. And the other issue appears to be how glucose binds to the protein, in this case, hemoglobin. And these are all genetic issues that we don't have control over. So I'm not talking about somebody with anemia. I'm not talking about somebody who just had a blood transfusion or a hemoglobinopathy. I'm talking about somebody where nothing has changed. And what we found in our study is that for an estimated A1C of 7%, on the CGM, if the average is 154, what we found is that 50% of the people, their measured A1C from the lab, whether it's the Mayo Clinic or the University of Washington, the measured A1C will be more than a half a point higher or lower. So it will be above seven and a half or below six and a half if the estimated A1C or GMI, glycemic management indicator, says it should be seven. And what we also found is that 22% of patients that measured A1C will be one percentage point off. So mm -hmm. if the GMI or estimated A1C is seven, the measured A1C will be above eight or below six. <laughs> and, 
And that's normal biology. When, when we published this and when we saw this, for me, the light bulb went off. Why the A1Cs don't always match the blood sugars, mm. whether they're finger stick or CGM. It all has to do with the fact that there are things that the patient can't control and we can't control. And it's ironic, I'm giving the Alan Garber lecture, and it was actually Alan Garber's quote, at least it was the first time I heard the quote, you can't pick your parents. He said that to me once. And <laughs> and and this is actually what this is with A1C. And so while all of the societies in the world have made A1C guidelines going back to the 1990s, before we even had good evidence, the reality is everybody's A1C is not going to be the same in terms of what their actual glucose is. And my view is A1C is a wonderful biomarker, but the real enemy here is the glucose, which is one of the reasons why I think we will continue to see this explosion of CGM that we've seen the last few years. And that's why I like to look at the GMI. I like to look at time and range. Mm -hmm. And my prediction is that there's going to be more of this in the next ACE algorithm mm -hmm. as our world becomes more familiar with this research. Mm -hmm. yeah, thank you very much. I mean, I think I agree with you. I think we're we're slowly seeing the end of the A1C and now moving towards uh, true uh, measurement of glucose, which we can do now with the technology. And that's a great segue to what I want to ask Dr. Samson. I noticed, again, we were talking earlier that the algorithm is broken up to either complications-based or glucose-centric algorithm. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering, how do you decide where to start? Are they two different parts of the algorithm? When would you use the glucose-centric algorithm versus the complications-based algorithm? That's a great question. So, you know, one of the things that was very purposefully done is that the complications-centric algorithm comes first in the order of the algorithms. And that is because the most important thing to make that first decision is to say, does my patient have any of these concerns? Have they had a stroke? Are they high risk? Do they have cardiovascular disease mm -hmm. or are very high risk? Do they have diabetic kidney disease? So that's the first step. And when you can say to yourself, my patient actually doesn't have these things, mm -hmm. Then you can approach things from a glucocentric perspective, which is really just saying, now you need to take into account the other personal aspects of your relationship with the patient. So for a patient who would be struggling with overweight or obesity, and they have access, maybe a GLP-1 receptor agonist is the mm -hmm. best choice. You're not thinking about stroke, cardiovascular disease, kidney disease anymore. You're thinking about their weight. For those, you know, Dr. Hirsch was just talking about hypoglycemia. For those with hypoglycemia risk, you want to choose a medicine that has low risk for those events. And that could include an SGLT2 inhibitor, mm -hmm. a GLP-1 receptor agonist, for those that struggle with access and cost, then you may want to think about some of the things that historically have provided good control it might be a little cheaper. So things like thiazolidine diones that might improve insulin resistance and, and glycemic control. And then, of course, you always want to consider the patient that has mm -hmm. hyperglycemia and symptoms. So I'm talking about very high glucose and symptoms that you may need to go right to insulin or a basal mm -hmm. insulin and a GLP-1 to get them under control and then reevaluate your therapies after. So the 
concept of this second glucocentric algorithm is that you have ruled out your patient okay. already has those other concerns and you're just thinking about other reasons behind your choices. Thank you. I think that's super helpful because I guess they're both the same. You got to do one first and if no complications, go to the other one. That's right. I had a question for Dr. Hirsch, and this is something that's very interesting. I think it's new for these updated algorithm is that the metformin is no longer the always start first and then add on other drugs. It says continue or start metformin if appropriate. That's the first time if appropriate is added. So Dr. Hirsch, are we seeing now metformin slowly moving down from the first choice for everyone to other drugs, perhaps being monotherapy first line, or how do you interpret that on the guidelines? Well, it's a great question because I've questioned why we should use metformin always for a few years. Now, let's just think back because we have to figure out how we got here. The way we got here is we had sulfonylureas going back to the 1950s. We had fenformin, which was taken off the market, I believe, in the late 1970s. And then we had metformin come on the market in 1995. Metformin was very effective. It eventually went generic, but we didn't really have strong cardiovascular benefit data from it. Mm -hmm. We had very weak data. It turns out it's weight neutral. We don't get weight loss from it. And if you have a patient in your office who does not need a lot of glucose lowering, yet they are obese and they or they have new type 2 diabetes and they have heart failure or they have new type 2 diabetes, and they have CKD, there's no reason to even think about metformin. Now, we can now use metformin at a lower EGFR than maybe we could 25 years ago, but if they don't need much glucose lowering, that's not the first drug I would pick in that person with CKD. So I think as the evidence has changed, the choice of medications have changed, and as the cost has changed, the cost is always part of this. And we have to keep that in mind. And for many physicians, when I speak at meetings like the ACE meeting, that's usually the number one thing I hear is that the patient just can't afford these drugs. And I get it. Metformin, they can't afford because metformin is almost given away now, depending on where you buy it. But I certainly do understand that the evidence does not always show that we should use metformin as first line. That's so helpful because that's something that was always in all the past algorithms that everyone was on metformin. I think this it sounds like we are moving towards a more individualized approach depending on complications. Yeah. I mean, if I can add to that, I, yeah. I'd be concerned that you have a patient who is diagnosed with type 2 diabetes who has one of these complications. And because we say everybody gets metformin first, they miss out on a therapy that can reduce mortality, reduce hospitalization, improve their kidney outcomes. So that's why it's not that we don't like metformin anymore. It's that sometimes the right choice is something different. That's great. I was going to ask you, Sue, about the insulin part of this algorithm. And, you know, we've all heard in the United States with the issues with 
pricing of insulin, availability of insulin. How do providers use this algorithm to start insulin in people with type 2 diabetes? Insulin, oh, I always feel like it's one of these things where you got to start somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that there's a great evidence base for how you start insulin. There's certainly a lot of people giving advice on that. But in the algorithm for adding or intensifying insulin, the patients that enter here in this pathway are those that have failed medical therapies, non-insulin therapies, and still are not at goal. But one thing that we emphasize again in this part of the algorithm is that don't forget about a GLP-1 receptor agonist, right? Because we know that there are opportunities to use basal insulin combined with that and also some of the fixed combinations of basal insulin and GLP-1 receptor agonists. So that is emphasized once again. And then we took the approach that aligned with the guideline. So we have the 2022 ACE updated diabetes guideline for comprehensive care. And the approach there was also written by many experts on that guideline task force. So the approach is to think about where the patient's at in terms of their glucose. So is the A1C less than eight, more than eight? And then think about units per kilo and then titrate to a fasting glucose that is the goal of the patient. One of the recommendations is that that fasting goal be 110. And if you are above that, then you need to start adding insulin. Mm -hmm. That being said, I think the most important thing about the algorithm slide is once again emphasizing don't have inertia. This isn't something that you see the patient in three months and then say, I'm going to increase your insulin by two units. This really puts the responsibility on the provider to train the patient to titrate every two to five days for basal insulin, perhaps every two to three days for shorter acting insulins and get to goal rather than adjusting it at intermittent visits throughout the year. That's the important thing. I think that if I had one thing I wish people would take away from that insulin Mm -hmm. algorithm, it isn't necessarily how many units per kilo. It's like, how do you get this patient to goal as soon as you can? I think that's so key to put some time limits, how often they should titrate. And and the algorithm says adding on prandial insulin very soon after. So I I think think that's really helpful for physicians and uh, healthcare providers taking care of people with diabetes. Dr. Hershey had something to add? Yeah, if I could add, one of the things we added to the algorithm, which not all clinical endocrinologists are familiar with, has to do with the BEAM score. That's Mm. the bedtime glucose compared to the morning glucose. It's very, very easy if they're on CGM, but you don't need CGM for this. You can just do this with capillary glucose testing. There's evidence showing that if the blood sugars are dropping too much, it means they're getting too much basal insulin. It doesn't matter which flavor of basal insulin Mm -hmm. it is. And so certainly we know we don't want that glucose dropping more than 60 points on average. And in fact, the data shows ideally it's dropping less than 50 points. And if it's dropping more than that, what that means is they're going to sleep Mm -hmm. with too high of a glucose in the evening and they they need at least one prandial injection Mm -hmm. with their evening meal. So that's point number one. The other point 
that's extremely important is that we know that 50% of type 1 diabetes now in the United States is diagnosed in adulthood. My personal opinion is it's not always been that way. It's an evolution, just like with the increase in autoimmune diabetes and increase in type 2 diabetes, for that matter. We don't understand why that is. And I think clinicians should be have a very short fuse to look at diabetes autoantibodies, mm. IA2, GAD, zinc transporter, because if you get one or more of those antibodies positive or they have a sibling with autoimmune endocrinopathy, whether it's Hashimoto's or type 1 diabetes or Addison's disease, or what I have seen many, many times over the years, somebody comes in treated for type 2 diabetes and they have vitiligo all over their body. It has to be at least thought, could this patient be misdiagnosed yeah. and this patient actually has type 1 diabetes? Wow. So uh, we have so much more to talk about, but we're going to definitely have you both come back to discuss cases. But in the last few minutes of this podcast, I'd love for you just to give us a, a comment on what do you find the most important thing is uh, that the listeners should uh, take back from this podcast. So maybe start with you, Sue. Well, that they should go out, read the algorithm hang up the slides in their clinic and understand if they need more details in the evidence base. We have a, an incredible clinical practice guideline to refer to with all the evidence. And if I, if I could just put one more comment in, Vin, really important. You know, we've just come through a pandemic. We know that patients with diabetes and obesity had poorer outcomes with COVID-19. And we have added in part inspired by those world events, a vaccine slide as well as part of the algorithm that people can conveniently put up in their clinic and make sure that their patients with diabetes and at risk patients have had all the proper vaccinations. So we're really advocating for that as well. Thank you. Earl, final thoughts? Well, Sue stole my thunder with the vaccine <laughs> algorithm because it is something that I as a clinical endocrinologist have not been as attuned to as I should have in my career. But that part was, to me, one of the most important parts of the algorithm that we don't talk enough about. Mm -hmm. I think the final thing I want to say is that we have focused so much on which drugs to use in the glucocentric algorithm and in the complication-centric algorithm. But at the end of the day, it's still lifestyle modifications, which is a major part of the algorithm but we have not, I don't feel emphasized enough on, on this podcast, but I want to emphasize to the listeners that that has never changed. Whether we're talking about obesity, dyslipidemia, or diabetes, lifestyle is still king. And I try to practice what I preach with my patients. And I, I even have patients who, with my Fitbit, they still compete with me after all these years. And that's not going to stop because that to me is still the critical part of all of metabolic management in general, no matter what kind of diabetes you have. Thank you so much. Uh, there's so much more to talk about. There's a pre-diabetes section in, in this uh, algorithm. There's a profiles of all the anti-diabetes medications. So everyone should check it out. Everyone should check this algorithm out at the Endocrine Practice website. It's in the May issue. It should be free to download online. Do like Dr. Samson said, post it in your clinic, hand it out to your trainees. I think there should be some pocket cards 
cards being made and I'm sure there'll be an app coming up on the algorithm or someone will make something on the phone to make it very user-friendly. So I want to thank both of you for spending time with us. This has been a whirlwind tour through the algorithm. I hope you'll come back and hopefully we can discuss some cases on how to use the, the new ACE algorithm. Thank you so much. Thank you, Vin. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another great ACE podcast. Join us for another episode at aace.com slash podcasts and help us in our mission to elevate clinical endocrinology. Together, we are ACE.